We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Hello, welcome to another Water Cooler Conversation. My name is Nick Cater. I'm the Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. And we're taking the time uh, during this continuing COVID crisis, which we're now slowly emerging, to really think about some ideas, some definitions, just to get clear on our definitions before we start having more lengthy and difficult conversations about policy. But let's talk about definitions first. And joining me today is Dr. Stephen Chavora, who teaches European and Australian history at Campion College. He's taught social science and political theory at several Australian universities and published in numerous journals. He's also just most recently written a book uh, on Menzies, co-authored with Greg Mel Lewis, uh, which is well worth checking out. But but I thought I'd invite Stephen on really for his clarity of mind, apart from anything. Stephen, welcome to uh, Water Cooler. It's great to be back, Nick. Thanks for having me on again. I've been reading um, Thomas Sowell's The Vision of the Anointed, uh, written in 1995, I think published in 95, long before climate change and a long, long time before COVID and transgender and all the things that obsess us now. Uh, because there's a clarity of thought about Thomas Sowell, that his thinking then about mm. how we discuss things in public, about, uh, he talks about the anointed, the, the class, we, we call them all sorts of things, of course, um, latte city, sipping inner city lefties or whatever, but, but the anointed will do for me in this instance, because they are the, 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 the group with a loud voice who consider themselves to be educated and consider they have the solutions to everything as opposed to others like us who just see questions. Uh, so it, it's a marvellous book, but just to come to the definition I'd like to kind of get into today and see where it goes. The left, we talk about the left and the right all the time. Um, I'm sure in a minute you'll be able to give me the classical uh, background, the, 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 the etymology of those two expressions uh, in the French uh, assembly. But but this is what Sol writes. He says, while the left is defined, at least in a general sense, the dichotomy itself remains undefined because the right remains undefined. Those who oppose the left are said to be on the right. And when they're strongly opposed or opposed a across a broad spectrum of issues, they're said to be far right. This is a somewhat uh, inadequate definition to me. It's, it's basically saying if you're not on the left, then you're on the right. But what is the right? Why don't you start with the entomology and then work out from there? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I personally try to avoid talk of left and right, uh, left and right, um, in in most instances because you, you tend to fall into very very vague generalizations and category errors that just don't make for clear debates. So I do tend to avoid them. Every now and then I use them purely for the sake of of efficiency. But in terms of the historical origins of the, of the terms sort of uh, left and right, well, as you sort of suggested earlier, they actually go right back to the summer of 1789 uh, during the French Revolution, where the, the popular assembly of the people uh, were in the Great Assembly Hall uh, try, uh, debating essentially what the new constitutional arrangements of, of France would be going forward. And the question up for debate at that point was 
really the extent to which the monarch, uh, in this case it was Louis XVI, but it, it, the extent to which the future monarch would have the right at all to veto legislation. And, you so, and so members of the assembly uh, broke up at that point into two big groups. And those on the left-hand side of the president in the assembly, they were the ones who said that the monarch should have no veto power over legislation. And so they wanted to really sort of break with French constitutional monarchical tradition and start something very, very new. Whereas those on the right were arguing in favor of, of, of monarchical veto powers. And, and more broadly, though, in favor of a continuation of, of strong monarchical involvement in legislation. So on the left, you had those that really sort of saw the past and tradition really as a, as a form of oppression, a form of injustice, which needed to be broken with. And so we could start again looking forward towards sort of a, a brave new world of, of, of sort of French society. Whereas those on the right agreed that change was needed, but didn't want to break entirely from the past. They wanted uh, a fair bit of continuity with the past as well. And so consequently, um, left and right um, have been commonly used nowadays to refer to, to those on the right who, who have a more conservative disposition, who want to save as much of what they consider to be good in society, uh, whereas those on the left are often seen to have a, a more sort of, quote, progressive tradition. They want to sort of move away, in their mind, sort of move forward, away from yeah. past institutions. And, and in, in a more modern sense, uh, the term, that, so the left and right dichotomy have often now involved a, a particular view of the state. So in America, the left uh, have historically often been called progressives. And, and historically in America, progressivism has always seen the state or the government, the bureaucracy, as one of the main agents of social improvement. That, that the government, if it's enlightened enough, if it's given sufficient powers, can fix wicked social problems, whether that's poverty, whether it's racism, whether it's sexism, you know, or whatever. Whereas historically in America, conservatives have said, no, in actual fact, the state at best is just inefficient. At worst, it can be so powerful that it can actually create new problems. And consequently, if we're going to try to solve wicked social problems, we're better off trying to do it at the level of the people without relying too much on the state. So in that in that French assembly, we can see, you know, it's roughly there's there's elements of truth in it, right? There's a the conservatives who broadly say uh, let's not throw everything out and start again, and the progressives or, or the left who say we need to knock the whole thing. You know, it's an imperfect society. We've got to knock it down and build a new one. You know, that's a broad terms. But how about yeah. we look at this another way? How about we say, well, wait a minute, conservatives, as you and I know, it's not the same as reactionary. We don't want to keep everything exactly the same, right? You know, yeah. we don't want mm. to preserve, say, Edwardian dentistry just for the sake of it, right? I rather like modern mm. dentistry. But but what they're saying is that change and is is evolutionary, number one, and, and, and gradual, and that its motive power is individual ambition individuals saying i want to i want to lead a better life i want a better life for my family 
and therefore people become motivated to 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 do better, to innovate, to to bring about technological innovation, and and everything gets better bit by bit. Uh, that I think is what I understand as the it hasn't always been the case in Western society, what we now call Western society, but certainly it's been the default position for Australia, say, since 1788, which was founded by men inspired by classical liberalism, which believed exactly those principles. So that if that's the default position, why do we have to prove that the status quo is, is okay? We're not the ones who want to change it, or certainly don't want to change it in the radical way they do. Surely the onus is on them as the ideologues. Uh, yeah, totally. I mean, and, 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 and you know, much of what you said actually describes a, a tradition that I would call a kind of conservative liberalism. Um, I mean, you're quite right to say that many of the sort of the, the founders of European Australia sort of going right up to the 1850s, arguably right up to the 1900, uh, to, the, to the 20th century, uh, the, the late 1900s, uh, uh, the late 1800s, I should say, uh, they, they did see themselves as liberals, but when you also, you know, read what they had to write, they also had very often a, a conservative disposition. So they, they believed in change, and they certainly believed in the importance of the individual. They believed in rights. These are things that are intrinsic to the liberal uh, tradition, going back all the way to sort of the, the, the 17th century, and arguably finding its seeds earlier on in the Middle Ages. But at the same time, they had a deep appreciation for the fact that, that we as individuals do exist in a broader context of relationships and institutions with other people and that we derive a lot of our well-being and, and a lot of social stability derives from the health of other institutions like the family, uh, like civil society, which at the time was by and large the churches. And so, indeed, they, they, they did believe in, in individual rights, they did believe in individual liberties, and they did actually believe in, in change uh, and, and progress, but not completely sort of um, untethered from the institutions mm. and the ways of living that had actually, over time, proven to be beneficial for individuals and society at large, and also stabilizing for society. Um, now, what, what you've described is really sort of, I mean, Edmund Burke brought up a lot of the, the things that you've just brought up, Nick. I mean, and I agree, it, it, it should not be in, it sort of incumbent on those sort of defending something that's roughly the, the existing state of affairs to justify why the existing state of affairs should remain as it is. It really should be on those who want to change things. Um, it's the same sort of principle, and Burke always used this analogy, the, the, the analogy of medicine. So, you know, I, I, you know uh, someone should not, a, a doctor should have to not, a doctor should not ask me to justify why he or she should, perform, should not perform surgery on me when I don't want it. The doctor should justify to me why he should, what's wrong with me, why there's a good reason to perform surgery on me. You know, you, you change things, uh, not for the sake of change, but if you can come up with a really good argument as to why things as they currently stand are profoundly inefficient or profoundly unjust, but not just that. You also have to be able to justify why 
you think that changing it isn't going to lead to a worse situation or just an alternatively a different kind of inefficiency and a different kind of injustice. And you also have to justify why you think your method of change is the right way to go about it. And Burke spoke a lot about this in that great, in that you know, immortal book that he wrote, uh, Reflections on the Revolution in France, which he published in, in 1790. And, and Burke famously said that, you know, we should approach changing social institutions and social practices with the same sort of fear and trembling that we would sort of changing the, 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 the bandages on the mortal wounds of our own fathers. That is that, you know, and Jordan Peterson says a lot of this too, that society is an incredibly fragile organism, to sort of, mm. to, to put it that way. It's an incredibly fragile organism. And you change things very, very carefully, not radically. It's the difference between surgery and, 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 and to use Burke's term, slashing away at a body. Mm. Uh, the latter could cause innum- you know, incredible harm even if it actually does fix one particular problem. Mm. Um, and this is one other sort of great difference between what, we, what many might call right and left historically. Um, and another, another great guy on all of this is, is the great Michael Oakeshott, yes. um, who, who said some beautiful things on that. Um, well, there's, there's so, much, so much wisdom we can read on this topic and we should talk and recommend more of it, I think, to people you know, coming to this question for the first time, what's the difference between the left and the right? But you touched on, I think, again, we're going back to, to France and, uh, and, the, and the French Revolution and, and the reaction to the French Revolution, the, different, the, dif- the difference in the reactions of Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine really mm-hmm. very clearly and starkly show what we're talking about here. So uh, Burke, whose reaction, I think initially he was... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I think initially he was fairly enthusiastic about it. He had no great, uh, he, he wasn't holding a candle for the, the French monarchy and, and, and seemed that it, there were some injustices that could be corrected, but pretty soon came to realise that the chaos and the terror that followed showed that, uh, you know, just, just pulling the plug on one type of society and trying to put in another is fraught with problems. He predicted the terror. He, right. He, he he published his book a year before the reign of terror, a couple of years before the reign of terror started, which was the early seventeen uh, nineties. Yeah, and the the contrast between him and Thomas Paine, who was rather more enthusiastic and 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 spoken spoke wrote about, um, you know, the ability of society to to uh, pull everything apart and start again. Uh, and there's a book by Yuval Levin, I think you probably know, which is a, a very, not, not a long book, but very concisely looks at the the contrast between these two men. And and, and once, once I'd read that, I thought, well, that's that's it. There, there's one difference there. But I think the other difference is this, and it, it kind of starts coming, coming, coming apparent in the, in the 19th century uh, through Karl Marx, but but really starts entering the popular imagination towards the end of the 19th century, and that's this idea of utopianism. Uh, yeah. It's not just... Uh, so so the, left, the left project, or the utopian project, is not just saying, well, there are things wrong with the one way we run society, we think we should try it a different way, but it's they, we think there are things wrong with society, and we know how to fix it. We have mm-hmm. the solution. If we do these things, if we, in Marx's case, if we, 
if we if we run society scientifically then we will have a better and fairer and more just society uh, and there are so many of these these visions you know in Thomas Sowell's phrase the vision of the anointed uh, but they were often interweave and interrelate but right the way through the late 19th and 20th century people get a chance to toy with these things to experiment with them um, and we have that of course those enormous social live human experiments of the 20th century with fascism communism which are disastrous uh, or have many disastrous consequences and I'm, I struggle to see any positive consequences so is that where we're at is it is it a case that we're actually battling against people not about oh well let's try this way you know as if you were say you and I were stuck in the bush and we were trying to get our our ute out of the sand and and Cater's method with planks doesn't work and so you say well let's try this way and we tie a rope to the tree and whatever you know it's not that it's it's look get out of the way Cater I know how to fix this you idiot well yeah I mean you're right I mean in the in the it's, it's interesting yeah in the late 19th century early 20th century you had this genre of of utopian socialism um and it was a very common genre and, and sort of looking into the future, how all social problems had been fixed simply by sort of the abolition of capitalism, a very popular genre, and in some ways sort of pa parodied and, and shown to be what it really would be if, it, if, if this was tried in reality by people like Aldous Huxley and, and then, of course, uh, later by George Orwell, who sort of say, hey, you know, you guys want to know what a society looks like where all the problems have been fixed, where people think they can fix everything? Here's what it looks like. So you might fix this one problem. You might fix, for example, social conflict. People aren't in conflict anymore, but that's only because their power to think has been taken away from them. Um, and, and you know something, you know what the great text on all of this really is, Nick? No. Go back to 1516, I think it was. It was I think it was 1516 when Thomas More published his book, The Utopia. And, yes. and, and this was a playful little book that, that Thomas More wrote for his friends. And in this book, you know, you've got Raphael Heithleday, who appears to Thomas More and says, I've just come back from this incredible island and, and all the problems that you have here in England, the vagrancy, the criminality, the poverty, the executions, they've fixed it all on this island. It's, it's incredible. And, and, and Thomas More, though, where is this island? What's it called? Oh, it's, it's, Uto it's Utopia, hmm. which, of course, very tellingly for Thomas More, comes from the Greek meaning something like no place. But in Utopia, they, they fix criminality for the most part, and they bring about a society of people who are equal, they fix poverty, but the cost is there is, there is no privacy, and there's slavery, uh, so you know, people have the time to be able to become sort of uh, you know, fully educated utopian citizens. Um, you know, um, there, there, are, there are incredible um, uh, uh, military excursions overseas to get slaves, to keep, uh, to keep um, Utopia a prosperous country, and all these other things which basically um, everyone has to wear the same clothes. Uh, if one town in Utopia doesn't have enough children, then your children in your town might be taken from you and handed over to them. 
Um, you're not allowed to lock your doors, so people are out to come and go from other people's houses as they please. Everything to the minutest point of your life is arranged. And Thomas More says, you know, he sort of says at the end something like, you know, you know, uh, it's a pretty weird place, and uh, some of these things, you know, uh, seem kind of strange, and I'm not really sure whether I'd actually want to see it uh, take place in the end. But that's the perfect book that outlines what, you know, in a sense, the nature of our fallen humanity that, you know, if you want to achieve one thing that's good, very often it may come at the cost of something else. Mm. Um, So if you if you want to get rid of sort of social conflict based on differences of opinion on, say, religion, then a utopian way of doing it might be something along the lines of imposing a single religion on everyone. Mm. so that everyone has the same beliefs, but then you lose freedom of speech, you lose freedom of thought. Um, or if you want to get rid of economic inequality, you know, a, a, a utopian approach would be, well, we can get rid of, rid of economic inequality. We can do this. All we need to do is, severe, is have the state intervene in all of our economic transactions, intervene heavily in our incomes, and make sure that no one is amassing more than anyone else. And so you might bring about a kind of economic equality, but it's at the tremendous cost of human freedom and creativity. So those who hold these these visions, who are convinced by the rectitude of this utopian dream, uh, will look at those who don't as having an alternative dream, as saying, you know, well, you know, you're, you're, the model of society that you're trying to pursue is is wrong, ours is right, but. Mm. I, I'm not sure that as conservatives we really have anything approaching a utopia. We don't. We don't sort of say, well, look, if we do all these things by 2050, I just pick that number out of the hat. By 2050, everything will be fixed. We we don't see that we we see all the world like that because it's never worked like that in the past, and we know that the best thing is through gradual improvement, trial and error, tinkering, if you like. Yeah, it's the same way that that um, any invention or innovation happens. It's by tinkering. Um, you know, we yeah, like to yeah. look at great revolutions, like the arrival of electricity being the sudden thing that just in that moment changed the entire society. Of course, it wasn't like that. I mean, the electric light bulb was a form of the electric light bulb was was perfected or not perfected, but invented in in the eighteen forties. But it wasn't until, you know, probably another 50 years later that they found a viable form of electric light bulb that wouldn't keep blowing and could be manufactured cheaply and and at the same time found a way of transmitting electricity over distances, you know, without having to use sort of three-inch thick copper tubes. So it took from 1840s to 1890s to be able to start to begin to light cities, for instance, or introduce electricity into homes. So that's evolution and and that's the way we see that's in the technological sense but it works equally as well in the social sphere too we find better ways of assisting people and 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 running uh our affairs so that it you know we collect taxes fairly and so forth but all that happens bit by bit right so so shouldn't we be saying look i'm sorry we're not in the we're not in the game of utopia you know, so we're not playing that game with you. You want to go off and do that, that's fine, but you've got to convince us about the rightness of your new utopia. We don't have to convince you about the rightness of not putting it in place. Um, you're on the spectrum, you know, you put yourself on the left. We're not on the spectrum, sorry. I mean, 
I guess you could say there's there's some sort of right wing, you know, utopians, utopianism in say, you know, white supremacy or something like that. But but we're not into that. We're just not buying into those things at all. We're just trying to. We're not telling you we can make society perfect, but we do think that if we if we if we carry on with care, we will be able to improve it. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, historically conservatives, and again, sort of beginning with Burke, not that Burke really starts the conservative um, disposition or mindset. It's something that's, that's, that's really entrenched in many people throughout history. It's, it's a very human mindset, the idea that the prevailing circumstances that we find ourselves in um, are, are worth keeping unless they can be shown to be sort of profoundly unjust or inefficient. But you're sort of um, sort of to be judged innocent before uh, to, to be to be to be considered innocent before sort of uh, proven guilty to be presumed innocent. Um, and, and, and importantly, again, for, for Edmund Burke, for, for, for Russell Kirk in America, for Michael Oakeshott, a conservatism is, is not so much a body of doctrines like Marxism, for example. Uh, even some expressions of, of liberalism can sort of start to border on the ideological. But conservatism, which I think is actually capacious enough to, to, to have uh, a fair bit of liberalism within it, but conservatism says, no, we're not necessarily looking for any necessary pattern that should society should follow and that all society should follow, unlike someone like Karl Marx, for example. Uh, conservatism, it, according to its greatest exponents, is an instinct. It's a disposition. It's a way of thinking about social change. And it's a way of thinking about the way that things are. And, it, and it's kind of grounded... In, in the idea, in a few ideas, but one of them, as I mentioned earlier, it's grounded in the idea that, that society and peacefulness and, 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 and sort of relative harmony in societies are very, very fragile. They are very hard to achieve. And so we want to be very careful, first and foremost, that we don't destroy that by making changes, particularly changes that are in the name of sort of abstract and vague concepts like equity or even liberty. Um, terms which are very, very vague. To give you an example, you know, a, a sort of a, a liberal, someone who calls himself a liberal, believes in, a, you know, a society of equals. But a Marxist at the same time believes in a society of equals. But of course, what they mean by that is so radically different from one another that you have to ask yourself, well, how clear is this, the, this concept of equality? And you start to realize, well, there are at least two concepts of equality doing work here. Uh, equality of opportunity, which tends to be more in the liberal um, tradition, and then equality of outcomes, that literally everyone has the same stuff uh, which is far more in the radical sort of leftist tradition. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, cons conservatives uh, historically don't consider themselves an ideology because they don't necessarily say this is how every society ought to look. They're more inclined to say, look, this is what seems to be working in society. This is what people seem to want. Here's a problem in it. 
So let's think about whether this problem can be ameliorated. And conservatives won't even generally like to talk about fixing a problem because to say you can fix a problem is almost a kind of utopianism. Uh, you know, you know we're, we're, sort yeah. of, we're fallen human beings and so conservatism is an ameliorative, an ameliorative um, approach to social problems. And, and, it, and, it, and, and, and even deeper, it's grounded in, in, a, in a vision of human nature which sees us as imperfect and fallen and consequently you, you can't expect you can't expect human beings to be angels. I mean, and that's the thing with, with I would say, sort of a kind of liberal conservatism. Um, we don't believe that humans are demons incapable of doing anything without being forced by the state. And yet at the same time, we don't believe that human beings are angels mm. who will just spontaneously uh, be altruistic in all of their relationships and in all of their acts. Yeah. We don't believe that. We believe humans are somewhere in between. We're human. Yeah. We're capable of altruism. We're capable of rationality and reasonableness, but we're also capable of irrationality, of selfishness and cruelty. And consequently, if you've got a society that presently exists that seems to be working quite well for the most part, then you want to be very, very careful about any radical changes that might undermine that. And an example of such a radical change would be like abolishing the police. Let's yeah. abolish the police. Yeah. That's yeah. a classic example of a utopian radical change that, in fact, did lead to actually a rise in crime, not a diminution in crime uh, in those cities in America where it was practiced. Yeah. Let's go back to that question of equality. What do we mean by equality? Because... Uh, though you know, it's, it's quite common for the left to define themselves as people who are in favour of equality. You know, everybody should be treated equally and, and should, 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 wherever they come from, whatever social class, whatever gender, whatever race, whatever they do in their spare time, in private, all those things, it doesn't matter. There's an equality there. Uh, and, and, and the right, as they define the right of people who believe in uh, uh, you know each, each everyone for themselves law of the jungle may the fittest survive and whatever now that that's that's clearly not right I think if you look at Marx and if you look at you know the the latest kind of uh, distortion the latest variant of Marxism if you like wokeism if we if we think of it that way they don't actually believe in equality. They don't believe in the equality of human beings. Uh, because for Marx, you know, if you're a member of the proletariat, you have a different moral standing than if you're a member of the capitalist class. Uh, not based on who you are individually, not based on whether you're a good or bad person, but based on the fact you're a member of that class. Or, you know, in, in, in Mao's China, the landlord class, for instance. Or, or you can get even cruder in... In Cambodia, where, where Pol Pot describes everybody who wears glasses as an intellectual and, and they'll be in, tortured and killed. So uh, that, that you're not, you, you know, there is no equal dignity or respect for human beings. And now, of course, uh, let's take critical race theory. You are defined by your race, um, your ethnicity, uh, or rather race in a crude sense, biological race. And that decides your worth. You're not treated on an individual basis. So that is uh, both um, 
it, it is ironically disempowering for the people it alleges it's going to help because if you if you've got black skin, well, then you 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 it's not a lot you can do about you know the 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 prejudice that you face that's keeping you down, except overturn the whole system. Mm, yeah. Now we we don't. On the right, you don't think like that. You say, well, everybody deserves equal respect. Everybody is, um, we're all God's children. Uh, in Australia, the concept of the fair go, everybody deserves a fair go. That's part of our traditional ethos. Uh, and uh, if you don't get it, if somebody doesn't get a fair go, then we stand up for them to make sure they do. So shouldn't we be turning the tables and saying, well, it's us. It's us on the right, as you call us, although we're... We're not adopting that term for ourselves. Who, who are the ones who, do, who believe in individuals and equality of human dignity? Yeah, I, I think we should, and I think I think it's also very important for 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 uh, for people who sort of are described as on the right again. And you sort of pointed this out, not to just buy into uh, sort of what the left defines the right to be. So um, just about. Uh, sort of vampire, uh, heartless um, economics, um, uh, race, racism, uh, just sheer xenophobia. These are not things that necessarily characterise what we might call the right. And, and, and as you know, Nick, you and I are only using terms left and right out of, because it's, you have to use them if you're going to have a conversation about left and right. But we wouldn't normally use them in our, in our daily discussions of these things. I mean, I, I personally... If I want to talk about uh, someone who, uh, for example, uh, might uh, believe that uh, the police force in Australia is systemically racist, uh, I, won't I won't refer to them as a leftist. I'll say, you know, those who believe that the police force is systemically racist, yeah. just describe the actual belief and yeah. attribute it to them. Um, but yeah, I, no, I agree that th those who, who are sort of situated, what we might say, on the right, I think it's also important that they, you know, they admit that in the past there have been profound injustices. Again, you know, part of being on the right, if you like, or what I would prefer to say, a, a conservative or of a conservative disposition, is to know that just because something is, just because there is a state of affairs, is not necessarily to say that it's just all the way down. And, and we can acknowledge that in the past, there have been profound injustices. There's no doubt about it. And in the past, uh, representatives of what we again might call the right and the left, both of them have uh, perpetuated uh, injustices. Um, but being on the right is, is really more about it's not about denying that past injustices have occurred, and it's not about denying that present-day injustices occur. It's about denying that, in, in most cases, radical solutions to these problems are, A, going to work, and B, um, not going to make things actually worse. And by the latter, here's what I mean, you know, people who are on the right, don't, generally speaking, they don't like racism either. I, I don't, many of my friends are conservatives, they are on the right. I don't have any friends who, who would have any truck with actual racism. Mm. Um, and yet at the same time, um, 
they don't believe that what we might call the Black Lives Matter critical theory identity politics approach to trying to fix racism is going to work. For example, that that approach that you mentioned earlier, sort of what, what, what many would call wokeness or, or sort of the idea of saying that the whole system that we live in here in the West is a construct of white men solely for the benefit of white men and everything needs to be brought, uh, sort of torn down and rebuilt and not rebuilt by white men but rebuilt by a, a greater diversity of people and along the way white people need to know whether they know it or not, whether they like it or not, that they, that they are racist mm. and that they need to own that. The problem with that is not just that analytically it's incredibly vague and, and almost analytically useless, as though the, the economic, political, educational institutions that we have in place now here in Australia or in America or in Britain have not changed one iota since the late 18th century. You know, it's a ridiculous proposition to just talk about the system, the system that was created by white people, as those systems don't evolve mm. over time as the times change. Uh, but, but more importantly, th those you know, on the right or the more conservatively inclined would not sort of critique this idea so much as saying, well, it's just analytically useless. But much more important, they'll say it's actually going to exacerbate the very racial tensions that you're apparently trying to solve yeah. that when you basically tell white people that they are racist um, when you when you dis when you discourage uh, the the learning of an, a national literature because it is deemed to be racist when you punish people uh, for for um, using uh, words or, or watching or watching shows or, or that, that are deemed you know, whistleblowing or, or racist or something like that, when in actual fact they're, they're, they're not that at all. They're only deemed uh, racist by sort of, sort of professional critical race theorists. This doesn't make people less racist because most of them probably aren't that racist to begin with. What it does is it unfortunately makes them think that people who talk about opposing racism are basically wicked thought control kinds of people and and the actual project of genuinely wanting to come to terms with whatever racism still exists uh, that project itself falls into disrepute because mm. of the, the 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 actions and the ideology of those who have basically arrogated the whole uh, anti-racism uh, movement to themselves and, 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 and currently it is, as you say, it is a kind of uh, quasi-Marxist movement going on in the US. Uh, it, it, it sharply distinguishes people based on their skin color. Um, so by, if you're white, then by definition you're a racist because the whole system is racist and you profit from that system, so that makes you a racist. That's Robin DiAngelo's view, and that's a common view in critical race theory. It's not that analytically that's a problem it's that in actual fact all it's going to do is further exacerbate uh race issues and it detracts nick it detracts mm. from deeper issues so in australia the big thing is is aboriginal deaths in custody now as anthony dillon 
uh, points out a lot. In actual fact, the rates of Indigenous deaths in custodies is lower than the rates of non-Indigenous deaths in custody. If you're an Indigenous Australian in custody, you are less likely to die than a non-Indigenous Australian. But the, the thing is that the deaths in custody mantra is so sensationalistic, it sounds so impressive that it, it that people who are who are trying to sort of draw national attention to the problems faced by Indigenous Australians focus on on that. Yeah. But what they really should be focusing on is, you know, what's going on in Indigenous families? You know, what's going on in terms of fatherlessness rates? Yeah. What's going on in terms of alcoholism? What's going on in terms of abuse? At the Menzies Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. Steve, you talked about acknowledging past wrongs, which of, of course you must do, but it strikes me there's another difference in the thinking between and let's use their terms again. Let's make it clear. We are not owning these terms, left and right. You know, the progressive narrative I've always thought of as a once upon a time story. I think Johnson Hype tells this story in, in the words of somebody else. He's quoting somebody else. I can't recall who. But the once upon a time story that the progressives like is once upon a time, the world was a dark, chaotic and might is right sort of a world Hobbesian war, war, all against all, if you like. It's better now, thanks to progressive people of intelligent and enlightened positions, have gradually taken us out of this darkness into a more enlightened world. But we're not there yet. Uh, we've got a lot more to do to triumph over mm. these forces to lead us into the, the bright new sunlit uplands. And in that context, you might talk about you acknowledge past wrongs, things that we put aside. But it seems to me that that's a very much a utopian framing of things. It's a movement towards utopia. As conservatives, as we've already discussed, we don't see the world in those terms. And one thing that I think that conservatives should be able to do is to say, well, let's acknowledge not just past wrongs, but present wrongs, and let's acknowledge the present wrongs that stem from what we thought were enlightened and progressive policies. The, the, the present wrong that always sticks in my mind is the, the policy towards remote indigenous communities. Number one, the tremendous poverty that they live in, the lack of opportunity for people in those communities, lack of education, and the extent to which well-meaning policies to, of welfare, of land rights, mm. of equal pay, all these things have contributed to this situation that you find yourselves in now. Now, I'm quite happy to acknowledge that, and we should, and we should not only acknowledge it, but look, to do something about it, because to me it's a national disgrace. But I think the left find it much harder to acknowledge that. 
Uh, no, I, I, I agree with that, and, and, and you're right. I mean, conservatives not, are not only able to acknowledge that in the past there were tremendous injustices, but also you know, conservatives can, can acknowledge that in the present uh, there exist conservative, uh, there exist um, uh, uh, injustices, and I think your example of uh, remote indigenous communities, and and you know, and not just remote indigenous communities, inner city uh, indigenous communities as well, uh, the, the the lack of, or well, sort of the, the disparity in terms of health outcomes, education, uh, income. And substance abuse, and, and actually, Steve, not just not just indigenous. The, the, these, this is not a thing that's unique to indigenous people. It's a it's a product, basically, of of the welfare state mentality. Well, yeah, this is this is where the where conservatives will say something along the lines of, "Well, yes, you're right. We agree with you. This is a, a serious problem." But the what you might call the left leaning, or in the American terminology, the progressive solutions have not proven themselves uh, to, to help. And so you, you might remember at the beginning when I was talking about left and right, and, and one of the ways that the left has evolved over the last um, sort of probably, you know, uh, probably 100, 100 years is that the, the, the left, or in, as the Americans would say, the progressives, have tended to see the answers to most social problems in terms of the state. Uh, yeah. You basically equip the state with experts and the state then intervenes and sort of tries to directly fix the problems. And so if there's maybe uh, an inequality issue or if there's a poverty issue, mm -hmm. uh, the state steps in and immediately injects sort of funds, uh, welfare into those communities uh, that are currently worse off. Uh, whereas the conservative approach would be something more along the lines of, well, you know, what exactly is wrong in these communities and, and what existing structures in the communities uh, might need some improvement or, or at this point not, not doing very well that might be causing the sort of the deeper cause of the problems? What is the state of the family uh, in these communities, for, uh, for example? Yeah. Um, and, and, and are there ways that the state can sort of encourage uh, stronger families, maybe uh, by in helping or encouraging other civil society uh, institutions like churches, uh, for example, uh, to have uh, better outreach programs and things like that, rather than the state just directly intervening to try to fix something. And as, as we know uh, from the case of, of America since the 1960s and certainly uh, in Australia um, uh, more recently, that just state welfare programs, what they, if they may ameliorate some problems, but they tend to create much, much worse yeah. problems. And the much, much worse problem is long-term welfare dependence, which kind of psychologically cripples uh, whole minorities of people uh, because it takes away the incentive to actually to make something of yourself beyond being a mere passive recipient of welfare, the fact of the matter is, all of us know when we're young. At some point, we're going to have to go out there on our own and make a living, and you know that that does put a fire under you at some point in your life. And and to be honest, I could I can't imagine how crippling it would be to me to my ambitions, knowing 
that I never had to work again and I never had to develop my mind all that much uh, because I am basically going to be on a, on a sinecure from the state for the rest of my life. I mean, it, sort of what sounds like a, a sort of a, a move towards justice and restoration and reparations actually winds up having a devastatingly crippling effect on a, on a whole on a whole group of people and so the conservatives can acknowledge that there are real problems in this community but the, the difference is that the conservatives won't just say oh look it's up to the state to fix this the state is a very very blunt object what conservatives will probably tend to do is say let's look at the state of of the family in these communities and let's look at let's look at the state of the other sorts of relationships in communities between elders and the young and that kind of thing and and what existing institutions there and other voluntary organizations there can help to try to ameliorate this problem and and no one's saying it's easy this is the important thing no one is saying it's easy and and to and and to criticize what has been done doesn't necessarily mean that you know exactly what has to be done, but we have certainly learned what doesn't work. And on this, you know, people like Jacinta Price um, and again uh, Anthony uh, Dillon are very good on this issue. Yeah, we, you and I should get Anthony on maybe Jacinta as well and discuss this further. I think it's worthy of further discussion. But I think mm. it comes back, and you know, I'm drawn back to Thomas Sowell uh, once again. There are no solutions, only yeah. trade-offs. You take indigenous policy; that's certainly the case. There are no solutions, only trade-offs. And whilst at the moment I think we're we're looking with some some expectation of success, indeed some evidence of early success with cashless welfare cards, for instance, mm. I have no doubt that within time we'll start realising some unintended consequences there that need to be addressed. Right? It's just the end yes. of the cycle, but. It, and this is sort of intrinsic to conservatism that, um, you know, the conservative recognizes how complex and, and also just how, how fallen the human condition is. And that, yeah, when you do fix one thing, it may well turn out that something else is uh, a little bit worse off. And, and it really is a kind of, it, you really are in the middle of a kind of juggling act trying to ameliorate as much as you can, but never with the delusion that you're finally going to fix things. Um, and, and, and it's very often the idealists, the people who, can, who think we can, just, we can really fix these problems that are the most dangerous, because for a start, it, it, it indicates that they really don't understand how serious and complex the problems are. Uh, and and that, what that means then is that any solutions that they offer are going to be based on a misunderstanding of the thing that they're actually trying to save. And so they're almost destined at the very least to fail, at worst, to make things worse. And I have to say, I'm not a Machiavellian, but I do remember reading Machiavelli. I can't remember which book it was, whether it was The Prince or whether it was his discourses. And he said something that's always stuck with me. And he said, and I'm going to paraphrase it now, but he said, Generally speaking, the moment when people notice a very complex social problem, the, the moment when it first becomes obvious, by then it's already too late to fix it. And that is the predicament that we are in. That, that is the human condition that we are in. And that's why the conservative approach to social change, which recognizes how fragile order and stability are, 
and which also recognizes that justice and injustice exist. So conservatism actually believes in objective morality and objective justice and injustice. It's not just a social construct for the conservative. You know, conservatives really believe in these things. That the, the best way to address these is very, very carefully, uh, very deliberately, and, and not with any delusions that you are finally going to fix this and create the utopian world that you, know, you think that all people should have a right to live in. It's just, it's just not realistic. And when you think about all the utopians uh, of the last sort of 200 years, their, their ideas, they've either just been incredibly sort of crackpot ideas or ideas that have just wound up being incredibly detrimental and, and the great utopian even though he never wanted to be called a utopian he said he hated utopianism but he was a utopian it was Karl Marx mm. and Karl Marx's ideology was incredibly destructive wherever it was practiced and it's still inspiring what we might call many woke movements to this day and rather than you know ex rather than uh, soothing uh, racial problems or, or gender problems, actually inflaming them. Yeah, I think you're right. And I'm glad you've used the word delusions twice in one answer, uh, because I was about to come to delusions. This is what I think the central delusion of the progressive left. Here we go again, using their terms. But uh, and, and that is the, the delusion that you can fix communities, societies, and even individual people uh, with science, uh, and and this this is you know, it begins with Marx. I think uh, the best that I can trace it back, Marx's idea that you could scientifically order uh, a society, have scientifically run government that would fix these problems. It carries on with you know some of the followers of Charles Darwin, Herbert Spencer in particular, um, that leads to the idea of you know all sorts of eugenics and all sorts of bad but it's this continual belief that 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 if if you just get the scientific formula right you can produce a perfect society and as conservatives i think we just rebel against that because we say you know these are human beings and um you may be familiar with a, a book i think from the late 70s by richard nelson the moon and the ghetto and and the the thesis of the moon and the ghetto is basically the paradox that that we can send people to the moon but we can't fix the problems of the ghetto uh and yet we're there right we've just we've just every time every attempt every scheme every solution has failed to do that to achieve yeah. it yeah no, you science is an incredibly important thing to discuss when we're talking about you know what's going on today um, in the West, particularly during the COVID pandemic. And, and what you point up, you're talking essentially about a kind of technocracy, uh, sort of a, a kind of rule of scientific experts. And in actual fact, you could probably trace it all the way back to Plato. I mean, Plato's ideal republic was a city ruled by the philosopher yeah. kings. And yeah. in Plato's time, the philosopher was sort of the mathematician, the person that yeah. just knows everything. But the, the, in, in honest, honestly, historically, the guy that really first suggested a kind of technocracy was actually Francis Bacon. Um, really? In, in his book, The New Atlantis, which he published yep. in the early 17th century, 17th I think. century, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, he famously said knowledge is power. And what he meant by that, of course, is that when you understand how something works, you can control it. And that's what a lot of science is about. It's about controlling nature to make human lives a lot better. And that's what Bacon was all about. But the problem is that when you start applying that methodology, as you say, Nick, to human, to society, which is exactly what the Enlightenment started to want to do, and it's precisely what Marx wanted to do, it, basically human beings become little atoms which need to be arranged and controlled for their own good. And the, 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 I love science and I love technology, but one of the things that we have to come to grips with historically and, and today is that the more we learn about the world, the more we learn about viruses, the more we learn about the human condition, the more tempted we are to control people and the more tempted we are to try to fix problems through controlling people. If, if you're sort of just flailing around in ignorance, you're less, you're less inclined to try to sort of fix the problems. The, the, the danger is when you know enough that you, you, know, you know enough to think that you can fix the problems. So what's, what's an example? Getting down to COVID zero. You know, our technology and our science was such that we could, we had the technology to track people really well. We had the technology to keep people home and have them work from home. This is technology we didn't have 30 years ago. We've got this technology. And so the temptation became, well, we've got this technology, we've got this knowledge. Now let's try and fix this problem of COVID. Let's try and get rid of it. Where other people in the past have just learned to live with illnesses and try to ameliorate this, the, the damage that they can do. No, we're going to fix it. And the COVID zero policy uh, is, is, a, is a superb example of, quite frankly, the hubris that comes along when you have a very scientific technological society but has but which has also forgotten that we can't know everything and that for everything that you might gain there will be a loss we, we've we've forgotten that agonistic vision of a society that that all the goods are in tension with one another you want equality then you sacrifice freedom mm. you want perfect biological health you sacrifice freedom, you sacrifice relationships, which is exactly what happened when we were trying to get to COVID zero. And sort of technology and the hubris that comes with science, thinking that we can solve all of our problems, that's the great danger that we're going to find ourselves in. It's what we found ourselves in throughout the 20th century. And, and one of the tasks of public intellectuals, and I think conservatives are really well equipped to, to deal with this, is to warn people that for all the great things that science and knowledge brings us, it also brings us a great temptation to fix problems that either can't be fixed or the only way you could fix them is to create much worse problems. Before we come on and talk more about this COVID, the technocratic approach to COVID, this idea that everything can be fixed with science, it really stems from an abandonment of belief in God, right? The idea that there is a domain which you can only know through something other than science, through faith, essentially. Once you do away with that and say, no, no, that, there's no longer that special domain. Science can conquer all. That's the great hubris. And it seems to me to segue into, into COVID. I had two segues into COVID, actually. One, the fact that Francis Bacon, as I recall, died from pneumonia, I think, induced by trying to collect snow for experiments using ice. 
the other segue is this obsession with death, you know, death, we don't want people to die. Refusal to have any discussion around the fact that the people who do die from COVID by and large are at the very, towards the very end of their lives and more often than not actually got have some other illness uh, and in some cases, I mean, pneumonia, for instance, has always been seen as a blessed relief for people in old age. Not a nice thing to get if you're young, but if you're in old age, it's a blessed relief. We've not allowed that to happen in COVID, or we determined that it shouldn't happen, that the, the state should be able to save every life, that every life is precious. And that's part of the problem we got into, isn't it? Yeah, especially at the cost of, you know, other people. I mean, and this is the thing, you know, no, no, I don't remember any conservatives uh, in 2020 just saying we need to just let this thing rip and do its work. I, I, if there were, they were in the vast minority of conservatives. What I heard a lot of conservatives saying was basically, we know who are most likely to, to, to die from COVID. We know that they are most likely to be the elderly or people with certain comorbidities. What we need to do if we're going to have lockdowns, we should basically have quite targeted lockdowns um, on those who are most likely to be seriously affected by this illness. Now, of course, the response to that was was sort of like, well, but if you have a, a comprehensive blanket lockdown, then that will result in even fewer deaths. And the, and the answer to that is, well, that is probably true. But at that point, you're almost making a fetish of life at, at the cost of sort of, in, in a sense, the meaning of life, that, that is um, being a member of a society, uh, people being able to relate to one another, people being able to work, people just being able to engage to one another, uh, with one another at a social level. And, and, it, and it's true, we, we got to the point where it was almost becoming intolerable that even a single person uh, could die from COVID. And so, you know, uh, you know in, in some instances, you had whole states putting up their borders and locking people down with, you know, one case of COVID. And, and, and to me, you know, I, I don't want to be flippant about any of this and I don't want to say that any of this was easy, but I can't help but think as, as someone who, who does like to ask, you know, what, what are the big sort of worldview changes that take place in societies over time? I, I can't help but think that sort of the, probably the, in some ways the decline maybe of Christianity, the decline in the belief of an afterlife or at least the decline of some kind of social emphasis on the afterlife has probably led a lot of people to believe, rightly or wrongly, that this life is all that we've got. This is it. And if you lose your life here, there's nothing else. And so everything, everything is worth sacrificing just to stay alive, for anyone to stay alive. And, and it just got to the point where we were basically, I mean, Melbourne was in lockdown for, for what was it? Um, 260 days, I think. Yeah, 260 days. World record. Uh, just unbelievable. And, and so I, I can't help but think that, that one of the things driving these lockdowns, I think a few things were driving them. I, I think that there, there are sort of political dynamics going on. No politician wants to be blamed for a high death rate. And so the safest thing for them to do is to do a lockdown 
especially when other countries started doing it. You could just say, I was just following best advice. I think there are political... Re but I do think that there's this other, this other sort of thing that's contributed, and, and that is that, that death now is just... An in we see it as an intolerable, unjust, almost unnatural burden that, that no one should really have to endure. And it's the first time in history we've, we've ever thought that way. And this is probably the first time in history we've really been able, we've had the science and the technology to do everything that we could to try to make it so that no one died. So on the, on the one hand, we've got incredible um, information, artificial intelligence, science to track people's movements and to allow people to work from home. Uh, we've got you know, we've got incredible advances in virology as well, so we can understand things. And then on top of that, we've got this almost, um, almost nihilistic view that the only thing that has any meaning is to, to sort of, to be able to, um, to stay alive, really. Just to, the, the biological human entity is the only thing that's, that's, that's worth preserving. Everything else should be sacrificed for the, for the bios. And combine those two things together and you get, yeah, a, a whole state locked up for 260 days where children aren't able to go to school, people aren't able to visit parents, people aren't able to go and see their parents die, people aren't able to marry, people aren't able to go to funerals, people aren't able to keep their businesses going and so they go out of business, all for the sake of biological health. It, 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 it really is. It's a kind of madness that we've fallen into the authoritarian top-down coercive approach to managing this crisis has not been unique to left of center governments there have been generally i think some broad differences between new south wales and and yep. victoria that reflect i hope the difference between a, a liberal government and a labor one and there's certainly been differences with new zealand again a labor government but the differences have not been that stark in some cases, and we've seen uh, liberal governments in, get involved in quite coercive uh, and um, draconian top-down measures. Yeah. So I, I, yeah. the question in my mind has always been, what's an alternative approach? What, what, mm -hmm. what would a liberal conservative approach be if we have one? And at various points, a moment of clarity has come, most recently, I think, over the vaccine. Mm. So what we've said they've had a technocratic approach that said well we've done the numbers once we get to 80 percent double vaccination we can open up the economy a bit we get to 90 percent we can open it up a bit more we can allow vaccinated people at least to go about their business at the latest here in new south wales when we get to 95 percent then unvaccinated people can go about their business but everything is set by a technocratic goal right? a bureaucratic goal let's get to this number there's nothing magic about it you know, the, is, are we going to be safer out there once we've got to 90% than we are at 89%? Marginally, yeah. arguably, yeah. perhaps, but no. We've, what about, and the, this is the state taking responsibility, what about we threw it back and did it the other way? What about we said the individual takes responsibility? The state will take responsibility for uh, obtaining distributing the vaccines, making sure they're available to everybody uh, in enough numbers. You know where to go to get them. You know what our advice is on this. Mm. Now we're going to open up the economy. We're going to open it up. We're going to end all restrictions on, let's say, 
you know, 1st of December to pick a date out of the hat. Uh, by then, we strongly advise that you go and get vaccinated. If you yeah. don't, then it's your own responsibility. Seems to me an approach like that would be much, much more in keeping with our general uh, philosophy of life, that we it's the individual that takes responsibility for themselves. Um, yeah. and, and also, if necessary, they, individuals may think, well, you know, I, I, I don't want to pass this on to granny, even if I'm safe, so I will take it, you know. Mm. Yeah. Um, and and if, I mean, if people really are worried about getting COVID, well, you know, we there is a solution now and it is get vaccinated. And sometimes, Nick, I think, I mean, sometimes I think the most the most underreported the most underreported adverse effect of taking the vaccine is suddenly becoming terrified of anyone who isn't vaccinated or becoming terrified of COVID. And people almost forget that once you're vaccinated, you're, you're statistically incredibly unlikely to have any adverse effects uh, from COVID. Um, I, I think what's happened is, is really, a, again, an incredibly strange thing uh, that's taken place now. Indeed, you could we could say that that what what is the state's role in all of this? Well, we could say, look, most people but thought that sort of the, the flattening the curve at the beginning was sort of reasonable. We don't want to overwhelm the health system. Okay, reasonable. Okay, but of course that turned into months and months of of lockdowns. And and I think in in actual fact the proper approach probably was that early approach that let's focus on not overwhelming the health system and how much freedom do we give people we give people freedom to the extent that we know that the health system will not be overwhelmed because we don't want people you know uh, dying at home for lack of a ventilator or something like that but the thing is what we've sort of learned is that for the most part certainly during the 2021 lockdowns is that that although there may have been some hospitals that were sort of close to getting overwhelmed as a whole, certainly in New South Wales, the health system was not um, was not in danger of being overwhelmed. And and what happened was that we we just slipped away. We we the 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 thing that tends to happen with COVID in Australia is that we we, we sort of we always forget that the goal is not COVID zero. The goal is to make sure that the health system isn't overwhelmed. And and we forget that, and we lapse back into the COVID zero approach. And and so. Certainly, once the vaccines were available and the most vulnerable were vaccinated, it should have basically been an, an open-up approach. And if you're afraid of getting COVID, then get vaccinated. Now, some will say, oh, but what about those who, who have very, very fragile health conditions and they, they can't get vaccinated because the vaccine might have a seriously adverse effect? Well, that's fair enough. But the problem is... You, you cannot lock down a whole society for that smaller minority of people who are still going to have to be careful anyway because people like that can die from a flu. People like that can die from all sorts of things. And so it's still not the right thing to do to lock down a whole society. And I'm sorry to say that, that for, 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 for unfortunate people like that, they really do actually have to take uh, their health responsibility into their own hands or in, into the hands of their carers. You just can't lock down millions of people uh, for, for, for that kind of a reason, as, as unfortunate as it is. So if, if there was a conservative approach to this, 
it, it would be something like this. Well, you know something, the easiest thing to do would just be to mandate a, a total comprehensive lockdown and to punish anyone who doesn't take the vaccine when it comes out. That would sort of, in, in a sense, be the easiest thing to do, sort of Burke slashing away at the body to fix a problem. Whereas the conservative approach would probably be right. Who is the most likely to get this? Who is the most likely to be adver seriously adversely affected from COVID? Who are they? Where are they? Can we lock them down? Who are the people who are they going to come into contact with? Can we get those people to undergo regular COVID tests to make it as unlikely as possible? Okay, it's, 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 it's proving to be disastrous in nursing homes. So we're going to stop keeping them in nursing homes. We'll bring them into hospitals. Can we, okay, we're worried about the, the hospital system being overwhelmed. Okay, uh, can we increase the surge capacity? Can we make it so that instead of locking down a whole country, at the cost of hundreds of billions of dollars, can we actually ex expand our ICU? Can we get some rapid training of people to deal with this? That, that would be the conservative approach. Look at it um, very, very carefully. Look at exactly where the problems are and really try to surgically deal with it rather than just a blanket approach, which at the base really is about COVID zero. Yes, you, you talk about by, you know, can we get more hospital capacity? Well, here's the thing. It was costing us anything between a billion and $2 billion a week to lock down New South Wales. Yeah. The latest state-of-the-art hospital we built in Sydney on the northern beaches cost $2 billion, 500 beds, yeah. uh, dozens of theatres, big ICU capacity, all the modern equipment. Yeah. It, it's another approach. Now, we didn't do that, but... it. it uh, but in the end, I think, let's draw this to a close. I, I, and in COVID, I think we see the difference in philosophy, the concentration on society, which is what the what, what tends to happen on the progressive left, or concentration on the welfare of the individual and um, uh, shared responsibility. So instead of the state saying, these people should be vaccinated, these shouldn't, what about we actually give the responsibility to doctors, to GPs. Uh, if you're elderly, you should take care and you should get vaccinated as a priority. Um, everybody else should take, seek their doctor's advice. Uh, the doctor will know if you've got a comorbidity that is commonly associated with death. Just trust doctors to do this. Let's not make big edicts from the top. Let's relax control rather mm. than reinforce it. I think we would have got a better outcome. And the, the nursing homes you mentioned, a key example. I mean, the policy last year was quite clear because of the fear that hospital beds would get overwhelmed. Anybody who got sick in a nursing home would be treated there. It was uh, disastrous. A disaster. Uh, it, uh, yep. And the same thing happened in America hmm. too. Total disaster. In Europe too. I mean, um, in, we, we had... 75% of those who died in 2020 of COVID, something like 670 people from memory, were in aged care homes uh, and as a result of a failed policy. I think one thing that, that, that we, we sort of forgot in all of this is really, you know something, if, if you are going to have a heavy-handed government uh, basically saying to people, no jab, no job, which is essentially what has happened throughout Australia, you know, you've got thousands of, of school workers, including teachers, thousands of, of healthcare workers and, and, and 
countless people from other industries are um, losing their jobs because they don't want the vaccine. Whether the vaccines are dangerous or not is, is beside the point. The point is, though, that in a society that when you use the state that heavy handedly to get people to do something that they are so opposed to doing that they will rather lose their jobs over it, that cannot but have in the long run a social, a social cost. It, it may have it may have raised. I have no doubt that it actually raised the level of of the vaccinated um, quite a lot. I, I think pro- it's hard to know how many people would have got vaccinated if if they didn't have to, but I do think it raised the the level of the, the vaccinated quite a lot. But but this isn't just an issue of biology. It's also a social issue. We're part of a society, and when you strong arm that many people in society that hard. That's going to lead to knock-on effects in terms of social trust, uh, trust in government, trust in, in our legislative institutions, trust in the mainstream media. Uh, it's going to damage relationships uh, uh, in, in Australia. And so sort of the, 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 sort of the coercive state measure might kind of get a particular job done. But what it forgets, and this is what the conservative remembers, is that again, yeah, for everything that you achieve, there, there will probably be some cost. And at this, in this, I think the cost will be greater divisiveness in Australia and an even lower trust by a lot of people uh, in, in, our, in our institutions. I think that will be one of the costs of, um, of our COVID policy uh, over the last, particularly over the last six months here in Australia. Stephen, look, thank you very much. I, I'm not sure whether we reached any conclusions at, at the end of that, but I certainly clarified some of my thinking, and I think anybody who's listening that may have clarified theirs. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us, and let's have these discussions once again on some of these other topics you can help iron out for me. Thanks a lot, Nick. It's been great. You've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening.